Acts of Preservation by Jane Sherwin. I'm out for my midday walk, up and down the noisy highways around my office. Anything for a break, for a diversion. Exercise is supposed to cheer me up. People who need exercise have to take what they can get, and there must be a richness somewhere. But there are no other pedestrians. I am the only one, the only one, and the traffic is big and fast. Up the narrow sidewalk along the nearest highway stands the Mateo Construction Building. They've put up a new sign, prime acreage to lease, two acres will build to suit. So they are going to tear the building down. It's a handsome old structure with its elaborate brick patterns and expansive burnt umber tin roof. Up under the eaves is a silvery granite block carved with a date, 1925. Today, a long-necked yellow machine with one giant claw is at work. It makes a fist and punches the brick wall. Then it opens its claw wide, grasps the broken wall with its talons, and worries it so that dozens of bricks fall inward and clouds of mortar spread. There is a man in a white dress shirt, arms crossed, observing the process. He looks like he knows everything there is to know about big yellow machines. My heart sinks. I grieve for the building, for the loss of something old and fine. Loss is everywhere around here. The claw will send the granite block into oblivion with the bricks. I feel sorry for myself, too, standing there in the cold March wind. There is no neighborhood here anymore, just remnants of human habitation, fragments of neighborhood, at least five different highways roaring over each other, and ugliness. It's like Los Angeles must be. No one has any sense at all of the past. I hate working here in North Quincy, south of Boston. The beach is nearby, and the river, but no one seems to care. I don't like feeling so alone. I don't like the way I need a car to complete any errand at all. Most of the time when I go for a walk, I just circle the large parking lot two or three times under the dark shadow of the elevated highway. If there were shops, I could stop in and chat with the owners, buy some toothpaste or early spring flowers, gaze in the window of a jewelry store. I should be living on the Upper West Side in New York. The only stores I can walk to are the Frizzell Ladder Company and Murphy's used office furniture. I don't want or need ladders or file cabinets. Besides, I'm likely to be knocked into the air by drivers racing north on four-lane Hancock Street, careless of the pedestrian light. I complain about this over my cubicle divider, but no one sympathizes. 
the whole area looks like a once quiet rural community now set upon by freeways so that to reach your neighbor's house to borrow a cup of sugar, you have to walk across a bridge caged in with chain-link fence high above the speeding cars. A dump truck rattles past. In another direction from Mateo Construction stands a derelict house on a rise, its height emphasized by the way the earth has been dug away in front. Perhaps it might once have been a useful farmhouse. Now it gazes helplessly over at the plastic gold lions of the Cathay Pacific restaurant set squarely in the middle of yet another asphalt parking lot. I can smell sauces redolent of MSG. To the east, the Quincy Shore Drive rumbles past. The house is like the one in Virginia Hamilton's story, nearly swallowed up by the encroaching big city, rescued at the last minute by family. I doubt someone will be able to rescue this one, although they may be trying. There is a bright blue plastic tarp on the porch. There is scaffolding along the back wall, as though someone spends all his spare time, of which there is not much, working to bring the house back to life. The chimney appears to be in good repair, although the roof shows signs of damage. There are ladders, maybe from Frizzell. Northward, past Burt's Electrical Supply, Ethel M. Coleman's Home Insurance, and a Domino's Pizza and a Kennel, is the new Adams Inn, named for historic John Quincy and his family. Together, they form a boundary around a number of mysterious, decaying buildings and piles of rusting girders and abandoned cars where birch trees and sumac grow. I'm told that the new owner of the Adams Inn is gambling on the renewal of the Neponset River. He's put in a large, very empty parking lot and a wooden gazebo that juts out over the water. Sometimes I walk out to the gazebo at lunchtime past the guests only sign. No one has yet stopped me. No one is ever there. Well, there was someone once. He was, he said, a friend of the Neponset River. He suggested I take a canoe tour with him and gave me his card. But I haven't called him, though there was many years ago a time when I loved to canoe. Sometimes, if the traffic is not too wild, I cross the highway and walk through patches of rough ground, poplars and goldenrod, to the river, flat and gold in the afternoon light. Across the river rises the partly finished Pope John Paul II Park, with two soccer fields, bicycle paths, and skinny new trees like upside-down rakes. It covers a landfill the size of a small mountain. Imagine all that trash, used diapers, condoms, empty engine oil cans, sagging urine-soaked mattresses, all that covered over garbage smell. 
Beyond the park is Interstate 93, heavy with midday traffic. The Neponset River watershed, communities connected by water, says a sign aimed at drivers heading south. I turn around at the Adams Inn and go back past my office building and come to Tulio's, a surprising triangular restaurant with a tiny cracked sidewalk tucked in over the railroad tracks between the chain link fence and Hancock Street. They will serve you panini and stone pies and spinach ravioli or wood-grilled chicken and an excellent Italian wine. Here, I can pretend that I'm in a creative line of work where I enjoy fine food with creative colleagues in a creative arrondissement of the city. But I'm not. I write sales proposals for health insurance, and that's not likely to change anytime soon. Across from Tulio's is the Ritz Motel, a sad little adobe-like building coated with thickly whitewashed stucco, its window frames crumbling, and no sign of life except a few cars parked around the small lot. Next door is LJ's Auto Parts, with a junkyard dog and a number of used cars for sale, including a child-sized pink Cadillac and the occasional limousine. LJ's has a rose bush growing through its fence, and I suddenly remember how last summer it produced yellow blossoms. With all of this, you could, after a night at the Ritz, prepare a bouquet for your lover and be driven home in style. Trash is scattered evenly about the area. Dunkin' Donuts napkins and paper cups and the occasional plastic grocery bag caught in a tree branch, swollen with the early spring breeze. Where is the beauty in this? The theater of destruction, the theater of change. I wait for a stinking oil truck two BMW sedans and a rattling tow truck to pass and cross the street to take a final farewell of the Mateo building. To my surprise, the taloned claw has changed its demeanor. It's now gently approaching the 1925 granite block like a mother after a splinter in her child's thumb. It is no longer ready to destroy. It takes the block tenderly in its talons and works it loose, extracting it like a tooth from the bricks and mortar of the disintegrating wall. The giant yellow neck revolves slowly toward the sidewalk and carefully places the block on open ground away from the confusion and dust and ruin. My heart lifts. The watcher in the white shirt walks over with an air of satisfaction. He gazes at the block and touches it carefully with his polished loafer. All this time he has been waiting for this, the retrieval of the granite block. Is he a Mateo? What is he going to do with the block? Will he enshrine it? Will there be a celebration with generations of family the stone carver himself, great-grandparents and new babies. I can't possibly speak with him. I am alone on the sidewalk, and he's not aware of me, 
studying him and his giant machine, admiring his act of preservation.